I think that's all. All right, today we're going to begin a, um, a portion of Scripture um, that has caused a lot of confusion uh, through the years uh, within the church. And my hope is that as we go through it, we will be able to rightly divide the Word of God and come to a proper understanding of the events described. I don't assume to have all the answers, uh, but I know God does. And so uh, we are going to spend time in His Word, trying to glean from Him and make application to our own lives. Uh, today we're going to lay a, a lot of framework. Okay, So I do uh, apologize a, a little bit ahead of time for our, our study in Matthew uh, 24 and 25. I felt, as I was praying and considering and reading, I thought a little bit of framework is necessary for understanding, properly understanding Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, and so much of what will be covered today will be a little bit more academic in nature. So I kind of give you a little bit of a forewarning, okay? Uh, I do feel uh, that it will prove to be beneficial for our continued study through Matthew 24 and 25. And so I do ask that you bear with me. Hopefully I don't bore you too much this morning, okay? All right. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, and this morning we're going to just cover the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 24. And so will you please stand as we read God's Word this morning? Again, we're in Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 8. Okay? And a, a message that I've entitled, Prophetic Q&A. And so we'll look at that. Uh, here, okay? Let's, let's read and then we'll ask for God's blessings and leading upon our time. Verse 1, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Be thrown down, excuse me. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, that you would continue just to have your presence uh, amongst us this morning. Lord, as we go through your word, we pray that you would lead and guide us. And Lord, as we do come to a portion of scripture that has uh, been confusing uh, and, and been difficult for some uh, to understand, Lord, we pray that you would just open up our eyes, open up our hearts, uh, open up our minds that we might understand uh, your word for us, your church. And so, Father, uh, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for what you're going to do uh, in and through your word this morning. And we just look forward to spending more time with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, 
As you may have noted uh, from our reading of the text, today's portion of Scripture, uh, along with the rest of chapter 24, if you did read ahead, um, is going to deal with things of a prophetic nature. And uh, when Jesus speaks in this chapter, he's speaking about things that were going to happen in the future. From uh, their time perspective, we know for sure, uh, when the Bible mentions details about events that are to happen or yet to happen or to happen in the future, we call this biblical prophecy. Okay? Now, biblical prophecy has come under a lot of scrutiny through the years. Uh, some think that biblical prophecy is only for uh, the lunatics that kind of get real crazy, uh, go around proclaiming it's the end of the world. Uh, I think people uh, like that are associated with the old fable of Chicken Little and it's crazy think, thinking that a disaster is imminent and the sky is falling and, and they get a little crazy. I think... Um, Sometimes, sometimes, uh, people that get wrapped up in biblical prophecy can seem to lose some credibility, uh, especially in the eyes of the non-believer, and they can often be dismissed as overzealous or, or misguided or misinformed. And because of the bad rap that some have brought upon the subject matter of biblical prophecy, some in the church... Uh, they don't feel that biblical prophecy is that big of a deal. Because they don't believe that it's that big of a deal, they don't waste any time really learning about it or, or studying it, and, and really they, they just chalk it up as a, as a minor issue in their faith and don't give it much uh, substance. Okay. Although uh, this view is held by uh, some, and, and some may even say many within the church, I'm here to tell you that that is an improper view of biblical prophecy. Okay? Biblical prophecy and the study of it is very important okay, to the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And we ought to all be students of biblical prophecy. Okay? I was uh, researching some different websites regarding biblical prophecy and, and the importance of it and came up with a couple different reasons why we as followers of Christ ought to take biblical prophecy very serious and ought to take time to understand it and study it for ourselves. It's interesting because even on Wednesday night we were talking about prophecy. And I believe the children's ministry, they're talking about prophecy. And here we are in Sunday morning talking about prophecy. And, it, and I feel like, you know, sometimes the Lord has His way when we're just systematically going through the Word and yet all these different points are all talking about the same thing. It makes me realize God wants to say something about biblical prophecy. And he wants to teach us something. And so I'm excited to just know that the God has us in this area at this time. And so uh, I, I grabbed a couple reasons why it's important. Obviously, there are many reasons. Uh, but one, first and foremost, is just the quantity of biblical prophecy within the Bible. Okay? That should make it important in and of itself. Okay? Estimates of one-fourth to one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. 
Okay? In the Old Testament, it would include uh, portions of the Psalms, the major and minor prophets, and, and many passages within the historical books. In the New Testament, entire books of the Bible, like First and Second Thessalonians, Revelation, they are devoted to prophecy, as are major passages like the one before us in Matthew chapter 24 and uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay? To ignore Bible prophecy is to ignore a significant portion of God's Word. Okay? And we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and that certainly includes biblical prophecy. Another reason why biblical prophecy and the study of biblical prophecy is important and should be important to us is that it serves as an authenticator of the Bible. Bible prophecy offers the clearest indication that the Bible is in fact the verifiable word of God. The Bible contains hundreds of of fulfilled secular prophecies pertaining to cities, nations, empires, and even individuals that are named hundreds of years before coming onto the scene. One example of such is in the text before us, is Jesus foretold of the destruction of Jerusalem nearly 40 years prior to it taking place. Fulfilled prophecies of the Bible are backed up by mountains of historical data, archaeological evidence, and staggering mathematical uh, probability that shows that these things just could not have happened just by chance. No other source of historical knowledge can make the, such claims that the Bible does. Okay? And the reason that no other book and no other source can make those claims is because no other book and no other source is the inspired Word of God. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, and verse 11, the latter part of verse 11, it says this, Remember the former things of old. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The latter part of verse 11 says, Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God's word will come to pass. Okay? Nothing can keep him from fulfilling his word. And so the prophecy, it helps to authenticate the word of God because it's able to, with such accuracy, portray things that are yet to come. We can be confident that this is the word of God. Another reason that biblical prophecy is important is that it is a great tool for evangelism. One of the easiest and most natural methods for spreading the gospel is the sharing of Bible prophecy. 
In fact, if, if you look in the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, sharing fulfilled Bible prophecy was the primary method of spreading the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gave a message in Jerusalem in which he cited fulfillment of the messianic prophecies as clear proof that Jesus was uh, the Messiah, that he was their long-awaited Messiah. And in this speech, it led to 3,000 people giving their life to the Lord. Later in that same book of Acts, we learn the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. Most of you guys are familiar with that portion of Scripture, in which Philip uses a fulfilled prophecy from the book of Isaiah regarding the suffering lamb to explain the gospel and that Jesus was the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. We ought to study and know Bible prophecy and use it as a means to reach out and to evangelize the lost. One last point that I've grabbed is that studying and and looking into Bible prophecy, it is an encouragement for holy living. A proper understanding of biblical prophecy should lead a believer to live a life that is holy. Fulfilled prophecy is a constant reminder of God's awesome power, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the absolute certainty that promises yet unfulfilled will come to pass. This breeds a number of Christ-like characteristics in the life of a Christian, something that Paul wrote about in his letter to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we are looking for His return, we are looking for that appearance of Jesus Christ, we are living a life for the Lord. We are wanting to be godly. We want to be ready when He comes. When we live our life with the confidence that that unfulfilled prophecy will come to pass, it causes us to live in expectation of those things. And and there are other reasons why prophecy is important, but I do want to get to the text here this morning, and so I wanted to lay that out. Bible prophecy is important. We ought to study it. We ought to be students of it. We ought to be at least somewhat familiar with it. And I want to encourage you, if you've been one of those kind of persons that put it on the shelf and says it's really not that important, I want to challenge you to, to reassess that, that assessment that you've made. Let's get into the text here. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. When we last left off in our study of Matthew, uh, we left off with Jesus speaking eight woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And then we read of how Jesus lamented 
over Jerusalem and their unwillingness to accept him and to allow him to gather them in. In verse 38 and 39 of Matthew 24, you guys can peek back there. Uh, Jesus, he gave his final words before departing the temple, claiming that their house was now desolate and that they would not see him again until they proclaimed, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In verse 1 of our study, our text here, we see Jesus and the disciples, they're exiting the temple area. And as they do so, the disciples, they took notice of the temple buildings. Okay? And, and they brought their observations to Jesus. You know, no doubt the disciples were in awe of the temple buildings. They say uh, of the temple, uh, of Herod's temple, that the gates were brass, the courts were marble, and the furnishings were gold. The stones used in construction were massive. Okay? Uh, in fact, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, he actually states that the stones Herod used were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet thick. Okay? And that, to me, when I read that, that's, gotta, that's a little bit exaggerated. It's got to be, right? That's just too huge of a rock. Uh, but interestingly enough, um, excavations of, of the retaining wall that Herod built for the Temple Mount, uh, they show stones that were discovered that were 45 feet long. They were 6 feet high and 8 feet thick. Uh, and so we know Herod was accustomed to using incredibly massive stones in his building projects. And so it's understandable, I think, for the disciples to be enamored with the, the beauty and just the splendor, the grandeur of the temple. And so they bring this notice, these thoughts to Jesus. And in response to the disciples' awe of the temple, Jesus said something that had to have sounded quite foolish, in my opinion, uh, to them, uh, to those disciples, when he said, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. You know, the stones that they used in the construction, they were huge. They were massive. Some estimate that they could have weighed between 110 and 120 tons. Okay? Even today, engineering... uh, the engineering used to build with these massive stones is still a marvel to consider. They are not sure how they were able to do it, but yet they did. And to think that every single one of those stones would be thrown down to where not one would be left upon another had to have seemed inconceivable on behalf of the disciples. Despite what the disciples may have been thinking the words Jesus spoke, they would come true. Okay? Just as he said that they would, and they came true in the year 70 A.D. Okay? Prior to 70 A.D., there was a widespread Jewish, Jewish revolution against the Romans, and they did enjoy some early success. But in 70 A.D., the Romans... Okay? They stormed Jerusalem under the leadership of the future emperor Titus. Okay? And it was called the Siege of Jerusalem, this battle. 
And although Titus commanded his soldiers, history tells us that Titus actually wanted to preserve the temple. And he actually wanted to make it into a, a, a temple to worship uh, the uh, other gods. Basically, it was so, uh, the grandeur of it was so much. And that he commanded his soldiers not to desecrate or harm the temple. But history tells us that one of his soldiers actually threw a torch into the temple. And it caught fire. And we're told that uh, the ensuing fire became so hot that the gold inside the temple began to melt and run down in between the crevices of the rocks. And so when that happened, when it cooled and solidified, the Roman soldiers began to pull down the stones one by one of the temple in order to get all of the gold that was hidden in the crevices. They didn't quit until they had managed to pull down every single stone and unbeknownst to them, thus fulfilled Jesus' prophecy exactly as he said it would happen. Amazing. Verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Matthew chapters 24 and 25, uh, we started to get into Jesus' words, and Jesus is going to continue through 24 and 25. Uh, It's often called the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because Jesus shares these words with his disciples upon the side of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And and the context of the message of the Olivet Discourse uh, that Jesus gives is revolves around the questioning of the disciples here in verse 3 regarding details of future events. Within his message, and most prominently in Matthew 24, Jesus is going to speak about prophetic events that were to take place in the future from when he spoke them. Now, as I mentioned, there's been some confusion. Uh, A lot of confusion has uh, come in regards to just how far in the future these events were going to take place. From the confusion has arose many different views about eschatology. Eschatology is a a fancy word that Bible scholars like to throw around there, but eschatology is an English word that comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last things or last. Uh, It's combined with the English suffix uh, uh, logi, like biology or, uh, you know, any of the... OGs, ologies, whatever. Uh, we commonly summarize them as meaning the study of, right? The study of, you know, life or the study of rocks or, you know, the study of whatever. So eschatology is the study of uh, the last, okay? The study of last things. Or more specifically, it is a study of the end times, okay? Biblical eschatology involves a whole assortment of different views on biblical events like the second coming of Jesus Christ, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, uh, the rapture of the church, uh, the final judgment, uh, the 144,000, all sorts of things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Okay, uh, The great tribulation, uh, another thing that is studied within the study of eschatology. 
Though there are are many different views, I want to quickly just highlight three of the main overarching interpretations of eschatology. And I hope not to bore you, uh, but I think it's important in order to help set the stage for what we're going to be covering over the next few weeks as we study Matthew 24 and 25. Okay, The first uh, view that I want to highlight is called the preterist view. Okay, The preterist view looks at different prophetic biblical events uh, that have been unfulfilled within the Bible. So something that was said, and we do not have the fulfillment of it within biblical text. Okay, They say that those uh, prophecies of those biblical events, um, like the ones here in Matthew 24, that they have already been fulfilled. Okay. Uh, In fact, most preterists believe that nearly all the prophetic events spoken of in the Bible that were unfulfilled were fulfilled by the year 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And they look at the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as God's judgment against Israel for rejecting their Messiah. Okay. And they point to scriptures like Matthew 23, verse 36, where Jesus says, all these things will come upon this generation, as he warned the Jewish religious leaders there. And then they connect it to Matthew 24, verse 34, and it's speaking to this, as speaking to the same generation. Uh, and they connect those two, and they say they have the same people. It's the same group, and it says in Matthew 24, 34, uh, that... Um, Oh, i, I got to read it. 24.34 says, uh, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And so they believe that generation that was being talked about, every, it's all taken place. That generation did not pass away. Uh, and they connect that generation of 24 with the generation in chapter 23. And so they say, everything's been fulfilled already. Okay? Um, In my opinion, there are several problems with this view. Namely, that many of the details spoken of in Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation haven't happened. Okay? Uh, for instance, like if you look at verses 29 and 31 within chapter 24 as, a, as an example, it says, uh, immediately after the tribulation of those days, which they, if they believe happened before 70 AD, that, that this should happen as well, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from, fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other now i think if something like that would have happened in the years before the year 70 AD that the church forefathers would have made note of something like that you know uh, that there would have been you know a books written about that, right? Some of the, even the books that we have, the epistles in the New Testament, were written after that time frame. And so you would think that there would be mention of such a great event described like that in verses 29 through 31. And so that's, I have a problem with that point of view. I do want to give this caveat before I continue. Your point of view or your opinion upon eschatology is not tied to your salvation. So if you are one that's like, I'm a preter, I have a hold to a preterist view and I believe that, you know, you'll just learn the right way later on when you're in heaven. But the, 
it's not going to, it's not going to hinder your salvation. Okay. We're not talking about salvation issues here this morning. Okay. All right. So let's look at another major form of interpretation regarding eschatology is called the historicist view. Okay, uh, or historicism. Okay, the historicist looks at the prophetic events of Matthew 24 uh, and Revelation as having been fulfilled, but not before 70 AD, but throughout church history they have been fulfilled. Okay, again, uh, their take upon these events is that they've already been fulfilled. Matthew 24, Revelation, uh, the view of the details of Revelation uh, as being symbolic of historical events and peoples. For instance, uh, I'm not, this is just a prominent one, I'm not trying to attack or anything like that, but one thing that they have done is to look to associate and identify the Antichrist with the Pope. And they say that the beast is symbolic of the forces of evil that occurred during the Middle Ages. And they associate the seven seals and the seven trumpets of Revelation uh, with events from the 4th and 5th century of the early church uh, of Christianity, Christendom. Okay? And actually, if you read up on some of the different views held by some historicists, you'll find that they actually vary greatly. Uh, upon the actual fulfillment of different symbolic events. Uh, some say most happened by early 5th century, uh, while others say that they, they come right up to modern times. Uh, that, that, that's an event that symbolically represents this. And others will say that, that same event is symbolically representative of something that happened in the 4th century. And, and so it kind of jumps around a lot. And, and I think the historicists share some of the same difficulties as the preterists in that there would seem to be events that just aren't accounted for or recorded in history that would match up. And I also think the fact that they don't agree upon the symbolic meanings and they have uh, identified them with all sorts of different historical time frames, like, oh, this one's here and it's also here, and it kind of jumps around a lot. I feel like it takes a little bit of their credibility away, away from them. The third and, and, well, there's actually a fourth, but the fourth one's not even worth, like, dealing with because they basically say, oh, they're all right. And it's like, they can't all be right, okay? So the third one, and the major one here, is what we call the futurist view, okay? And the, the future, or futurism, okay? And the basic principle within the futurist view is that the majority of the prophecies in Matthew 24 and Revelation are going to be literally fulfilled and have yet to take place, they hold that these events are still yet future. They're still to come. When we read about what we're going to read about in 24, these are events that are going to happen still in the future of our day, and that they have not happened yet. Okay? Some viewer, futurists, they will draw parallels with some historical events, like the historicists, but they primarily will believe these prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the future. The futurists uh, are, are also sometimes they're identified as literalists because of the belief that many of the events in Matthew 24 and Revelation are going to be literal events that take place uh, rather than having them just be purely symbolic, which is oftentimes with the historicists, those, those view of Revelation, it's just everything's allegory, it's all symbolic, it doesn't talk about real things that's going to happen, it just coordinates with different uh, stuff that's happened already. Okay, and so uh, oftentimes it can be called, identifies as a literalist point of view. 
this is where I land. Okay? Um, I believe that many of the details in Matthew 24 and in the book of Revelation are yet to happen future events. Okay? I do not believe there is enough evidence to support the view that these prophetic details have already taken place. And so I look for a future fulfillment of many of these things. And this is important to bring up because depending on which type of interpretation you use for eschatology, you will come to very different conclusions uh, regarding the interpretation of the scripture that's before us. Okay? If you're a predator, you're going to say, oh yeah, that's talking about stuff that happened you know, at the destruction of Jerusalem. If you're a futurist, you're going to say, oh, that's talking about stuff that hasn't even happened yet. And so you can see, depending upon where you, how you uh, interpret uh, end times, you're going to have a very different point of view on what this scripture means. And so uh, I think it's important. I want to put it forth from the get-go where I stand and where I'm going to teach this portion of scripture from. And if you don't agree with me, it's okay. We can still be brothers and sisters and, and it's, it's not an issue that we need to be divided over, but it is an issue that definitely is very different. Okay? All right. The disciples, they came to Jesus and they asked him two questions. They wanted to know when these things would happen and what would be the signs that accompany his coming and the end of the age. I think that it is important to note that I do not believe the disciples' questions had anything to do with what we commonly refer to as the end times. The disciples are not looking ahead to his second coming and pondering the details of it. Okay? They still hope and they still believe that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom. Okay? When he gets crucified and buried, they're at a loss. They're like, what's going on? It's not like, oh yeah, well remember he told us that he's going to come again. And They, they don't get this. Okay? They don't understand this. I do not believe that's what they're questioning is questioning. But I believe that's how Jesus is going to answer them. But let's look at this. The disciples, um, I suggest to you that the disciples are trying to absorb all that has taken place the last few days. And they are asking Jesus when he was going to step in and take over as their Messiah and set up his kingdom. Consider with me what may be weighing on the minds. I am taking liberty here. So I want to put that out front too. Taking liberty here, it's not in the text. It does not tell us this. But consider with me. The disciples have been following Jesus for several years now. And they are confident that he is the Messiah. Peter, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Right? They are, he's the Messiah. Okay? And, and by their repeated questions about who was going to be the best in the coming kingdom, and some even jockeying for position within this kingdom, we know that they believe Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom, and that they hope to be significant players in. And for the last couple of years, Jesus has diverted the attention away from himself and has avoided the people's attempts to crown him, to make him their leader. But something changed for them just two days ago. I know we've been covering the Tuesday for a while. But in, in their timeline, okay, and, and they're still on Tuesday. And just two days prior to this, okay, something drastically changed. 
Okay? Two days ago, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey. And the people sang out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna, it means save now. Okay? Not save you know, later. It means save now. That's what they wanted. Okay? And the term Son of David is a messianic title. And when the Pharisees, they told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for making such statements, Jesus refused. And he welcomed and he received their praise. Finally, he's receiving it. Things are changing. The city was all abuzz with excitement over Jesus' triumphal entry. The next day, Monday, okay, they see Jesus go into the temple and clear out. He cleans house. He drives out of the, the, the buyers and the sellers, the money changers. He gets them out of there, flipping over tables, causing quite the scene. This day, for them, Tuesday morning, it starts out with Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders. But Jesus doesn't back down from them. He confronts them. He brings accusations against them that they have rejected God. And then he very boldly speaks these woes against him. And to top it all off, Jesus mentions here the destruction of the temple. It's interesting if you recall back, uh, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, the first time Solomon, the first temple, Solomon's temple, it was destroyed in the context of national judgment and exile. And, and perhaps when Jesus mentioned the destruction of the temple, they took it as a sign that judgment was soon coming, that God was going to wipe out those in power and control and set up a new reign. And, and it's interestingly interesting in the word age in verse 3 when they ask what will the sign of your coming and the end of the what is the what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age okay that word age it can refer to the present world with its cares its temptations and its desires what's going on then in that time and so when they ask this question i believe that it is with every thought of Jesus coming and setting up His kingdom and bringing an end to the current age that they are living in under the rule of the Roman government. I do not think that they had in mind, we want to know about your second coming and what it's going to be like at the end of the world necessarily, but at the end of this age, this oppression that we were under, we want a new reign to come in. We want you to come in. That, I believe, is what they are asking. I do not believe that they mean to distinguish between the sign of His coming and the end of the age because I believe they saw those two things as synonymous, synonymous that they would happen at the same time. Okay? And although the disciples may be thinking about the immediate future and Jesus setting up an earthly king, kingdom, Jesus, in my opinion, is going to respond to them in a manner that takes advantage of an opportunity to speak about the details of His future second coming and the literal end of the age or the last days. And so their question, I think, is they're thinking immediate. Jesus hears the question, and he's going to answer into the future. Okay? Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Okay? Jesus begins with a warning. Take heed. Okay? Or your, your Bible may say, Watch out. Okay? Uh, beware, the idea of beware that no one deceives you. 
The implication is that there will be many that try to deceive, and there will be many who fall into differing forms of deception. How do we avoid being deceived? Okay. About the details regarding these prophetic events that he's about to dis- discuss. Excuse me. How do we ensure that we don't get off track, that we don't get misled, that we aren't those that are deceived? Okay. Uh, I believe that it's important that we lay some framework. Again, some more framework for you guys. I know it's not fun, but hopefully it's educational and, and helps to understand what's going on here. Okay? Uh, we need to build some framework in regards to understanding and interpreting biblical prophecy in hopes that we can avoid being deceived by those who would try and get us off course. Uh, my senior pastor, uh, Pastor Rick Barnett, uh, recently he was teaching through this and he just gave me uh, some great points and I wanted to share some of the things that he shared w- with me. Uh, and, and really they're just some good guidelines for us to follow as we un pack the next couple of chapters in regards to biblical prophecy and how we're to interpret biblical prophecy. Okay, The first and foremost guideline as we look at this uh, and just consider the inter- proper interpretation of biblical prophecy is that just like in all good Bible study, whether it's biblical prophecy or not, okay, we must keep the scriptures central and allow scripture to interpret scripture okay, as best as we can. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so we must trust the Bible and the Holy Spirit to help us interpret what the prophetic scriptures mean for us today. First and foremost, we let scripture interpret scripture. When scripture speaks clearly about something, well, we know that's what that means. But sometimes it doesn't. And so we need some more guidelines. The second guideline is that we must understand that there are types and there are symbols that we do not fully understand. Yet... And that we can make a mistake to assert an interpretation when the Bible does not assert a certain interpretation or a certain type. Okay? And I believe that this is often the error that is made by end time studies. People will look at current events for signs of the end and they can sometimes create fear or sensationalism that can lead people to do uh, unreasonable and unbiblical things as they react in fear. Okay? They say, oh, that, that war in the Middle East, that's talking about this. And it's like, well, we really don't know if that's really talking about that. But you get all hyped up about it, and they get all into it and, and sensationalize it, and you get worked up, and then you get fall flat when things don't fall through. And so we need to be careful about that. When there are symbols, there are typologies. I'm not saying there aren't. But if the Bible doesn't tell us the distinct interpretation of that, then we need to be careful of making that distinction ourselves. Okay? We can speculate, okay, we can say, it's interesting, we can talk about it, we can say, mm, this is, you know, interesting, this could play out in a certain way, we can, you know, do that, but please don't make bold statements uh, and, and decisive statements when the scriptures have not, 
So we need to be careful about doing that. Okay? The third guideline, just as the prophecy given in verse 2 was literal and fulfilled literally, I believe and will teach that many of the prophecies that Jesus gives as literal, they are to be interpreted literally. Okay? Matthew's record of Jesus' prediction of the temple's literal destruction that came true in 70 AD, it helps to give assurance that these other prophecies will also come to pass in a literal sense. Okay, now when we look at the book of Revelation, and we're talking about beasts with four different heads and the bodies of an angel, and the, you know, we could say, well, that's probably not speaking literally about that because that's not a literal thing. Okay? But when he says the, the temple's going to be destroyed, okay, and not one stone's going to be left upon it, the, the temple's a literal thing. Okay? And so when he says that, we, and he speaks literally, then we need to say, okay, it's probably going to be fulfilled literally. We don't need to make it into something symbolic. Number four, okay, realizing that there are things, prophecies that are spoken literally, there are also prophecies, prophecies that are allegorical, and there are prophecies that use typology, and we need to be able to consider those as well and put them into their proper context, okay? One example is Jesus said that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah who was to come. Okay? John was not literally Elijah. Okay? We guys realize that, right? He wasn't Elijah. He was John the Baptist. And even when they asked him, are you Elijah to come? He says, no, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. But Jesus says, he is, he, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah to come because he fulfilled that type. Okay? He was not a literal fulfillment of it, but he was a type, a shadow of, of sorts. And so uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, it literally fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah who was to come. He was the forebearer, the forerunner, but he really wasn't Elijah. He was still John the Baptist. And so we have to realize and understand that there's going to be times where we read something and it's, it's going to have allegory in it. And it's going to, we have to decipher that and understand all right, last one, one last guideline just to throw out there. Some cases, when we come across prophecy, there will be uh, types of dual fulfillment prophecies or multiple fulfillment prophecies. Okay? Um, there's an a, a original audience and a context in which these things were spoken, and they mean something to that original audience. Okay? In the case of Matthew chapter 24, the original audience is the disciples. And they're going to speak about uh, the Jewish nation. But, and there's a context and an application for them. But as we read it, I also believe there's a context and an application for us from the church. And, and so there's going to be a, a dual fulfillment of some of these prophecies. Many of the Old Testament prophecies in Daniel and Isaiah are like this. Uh, Matthew 24, there's going to be some things that Jesus, is de- that Jesus declares that will be fulfilled in the times of, of the days of the disciples. But they're also going to be fulfilled in the future, I believe, still yet. Okay, five guidelines. We're going to remember those. We'll pull them up from time to time as we're going through Matthew 24 and 25. And we'll hopefully uh, be able to just go through this gracefully and understand what the Lord wants to say. So let's move forward. Verses 5 through 8, the final verses uh, for us this morning. 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nations, and the kingdom against kingdom. Uh, And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay. In Jesus's, uh, ooh, am I on the right page? Yes, yes. In Jesus's response, <laughs> uh, he's going to address these questions separately. Uh, the first question he's going to address is the "What will be the sign of your coming?" What should we expect to see before Jesus comes? The first thing he noted was that there would be many that come claiming to be Christ. They are false Christ. That's false Christ. Yeah, false. That's right. It didn't sound right, but it is. Uh, this is something that we see happening more and more. Okay? I actually found an article on the Christian Post uh, that described four different people that are alive today that have made claims to be Jesus Christ, and they have quite significant followings. Okay? Uh, there was actually, at the time of the article, there was five, but one of them has died since. I don't know. Uh, Cirrhosis of the liver, I think, is why he died. But um, there's even a guy, actually, in Okinawa named Mitsuo Mitsuo Matayoshi that claims to be Jesus Christ. And and so this is something that that is not new. Okay? Ever since Jesus ascended, there have been those that have tried to claim to be the Messiah or Jesus Christ. A well-known false Messiah in Jewish history was a man named Simon Bar Kokhba, okay? and which means son of a star, uh, who was proclaimed to be the Messiah after leading a successful military revolt against the Romans in 132 A.D., Okay? He was even able to establish a Jewish state that he ruled for three years until the Romans came back and destroyed it and killed him. Okay? And after the failure, the rabbinical writers changed his name from Bar, from Bar Kokhba to uh, Simon Bar Kaziba, which means the son of a lie or the son of disappointments. And so uh, this has been going on ever since Jesus ascended. Jesus said that they would come and deceive many, and we see that happening today as it has been happening for many years. The second thing he said was that we would hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, wars and rumors of wars have been going on as well since Jesus' ascension and throughout all of history. Uh, Jesus is describing what I believe the road to the end and how it will be marked with continual turmoil uh, between nations and conflicts, wars and battles that will be constant. And and so we see that still today in our world. Wars and rumors of wars and their speculation of, you know, uh, Iran and their connection with them and uh, North Korea and their connection and what they're doing here. And and we get these rumors of wars going on and there are wars going on. You guys are very aware of those things that are going on. They have been going on for quite some time throughout history. In the second part of verse 6, Jesus said, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I think sometimes we look at uh, the wars, rumors, wars, oh, that's a sign of the end of times. It's, and he clearly says, the end is not yet. 
Okay? People claiming to be Christ and wars and rumors of wars, they are not signs of an immediate end of the world. Okay? These things have marked man's history for some time. Okay? They are not specific signs to watch for in regards to an immediate return of Christ. The same is true in regards to the other things mentioned in verse 7. Okay? Uh, the famines, the pestilences, and the earthquakes in various places. These are not uh, the signs of the end times that we are to be looking for an immediate response from. Because okay? these things have been going on for all throughout history. And so we don't want to get too worked up on these things when we see them happening. Okay? I believe, in effect, Jesus is saying catastrophes will happen, but these will not be the signal that at the end is here. In verse 8, Jesus describes the many false Christs, the wars and rumors of wars, the famines, the pestilences, and the earthquakes as the beginning of sorrows. Now, I, I, I read from the New King James Version, but I actually like how the NIV and the ESV and the NASB, they translate the phrase beginning of sorrows. They translate that phrase as the beginning of birth pains. Okay? And although I have not experienced the birth pains themselves, and I would never claim to, um, I am somewhat familiar with how labor pain works. Okay? Uh, you see, labor pain, it comes and goes. Okay? Uh, sometimes there's even false labor that we call Braxton Hicks. Okay? Braxton Hicks contractions, they aren't even real labor, but they, they're still felt uh, at first. Okay? And, and I recall my wife, Farah, uh, taking her, rushing her to the hospital when we were, uh, when she was, when we were pregnant with Jonah, our second, uh, because Farah thought she was starting to, to go into labor. And so we went to the hospital. We rushed in there and, and we waited and, and waited. And then, and then we waited some more. And then they just said, you need to go home. There's nothing, nothing going on here, you know. And... Um, and so um, we went back home. Uh, then when she really was going into labor with Jonah, I didn't believe it, okay, of course. Uh, it was at the beginning of church service on a Wednesday night, and I told her, just hang out in the nursery, and I'm going to go to church. And let me tell you, that was the wrong thing to do, okay? Guys, if your wife ever says, we're going into labor, just take her to the hospital. I guarantee that waiting at the hospital and being sent home is better than the daggers of the ladies that you'll be getting uh, from their eyes that I received that night. Okay? Back to labor pains. They come and they go. But the one thing that we do know is that when the baby is coming, the labor pains, they usually intensify and they come more often. And I believe Jesus is describing these things as birth pains. Because as days draw near for his coming, these types of things will intensify. And they will increase in number. And that is why he likens them to birth pains. Okay, they've been going on for a long time. But as the day is approaching, they're going to intensify they're going to become larger, and we see that, and I'm not trying to sensationalize things, but we do see that in the news. We've got the largest breakout of uh, a pestilence of the Ebola uh, virus or whatever it is. Uh, it's a disease that's going on, and the biggest breakout in history. 
Okay, and so we see pestilences, and we see earthquakes, uh, and we see uh, famines, and we, you know, there's people starving around the world, and we see these types of things happening. We see them maybe even increasing and becoming larger. I'm not trying to sensationalize, but I'm just pointing out birth pains. Okay? We need to be aware. We need to be aware. All right. I planned on getting to verse 14 today, but after putting together everything, I knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, Next week, we're going to continue to look at Jesus' response to the question of what will be the signs of his coming and the end of the age. As for today, I know that it was a lot of framework, okay? And it wasn't a whole lot of application. But I do think that the framework will be very important for us as we make our way through chapter 24 and chapter 25. And so, although there's... a little, it was a little more on the academic side today. I hope that you guys were able to get something from our study. Uh, I do believe that it will benefit us in the weeks to come. So uh, you've got to come back to, to kind of put into application what you've learned today. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. Lord, um, oftentimes when we think of uh, end times and biblical prophecy, the application is always... Are we ready? Are we ready for you to come? Are we ready for you to to call us home? Father, I I pray that we would each have a confidence, not in ourselves, but in in you and what you've done in our lives. And Lord, that we're ready. We're ready for you, Lord. May we live a life that's honoring you, that's not going to be surprised or ashamed when you do come for your church, Lord, that we would be excited and that, Lord, we would be living for you. Father, I pray that, uh, uh, I know it's a little academic today, I pray that we would be able to just grab hold of those things and continue to use them as a frame uh, and a guide as we continue our way through your word. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, if anybody... um, just you know, maybe doesn't agree. Uh, that would be okay. That they wouldn't be a source of uh, contention. But uh, we could talk about it and, and grow together. Uh, Father, uh, we do love you. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that are found within it that we know will come to pass. Lord, your word is faithful and true, and we look forward to the unfulfilled promises that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.